Hey guys, it's Amelia Singer here on Ameliorate Through Wine, where I pair wine to international guest palettes, personalities, and personal stories. I am thrilled that this podcast is being vigorously propelled by the Rothschild Wine Collection from Good House Wadston, all names synonymous with a century-old legacy of art and wine craftsmanship. I really couldn't think of a better pairing for this wine and culture podcast. From the early 1920s to the present day, the Rothschild family's profound love for both art and wine coming together has been at the heart of their journey. Their family's artistic heritage distinguishes the labels, often telling a unique story that gives an extra dimension into their exceptional wines. With handcrafted bottles created by celebrated artists, mesmerizing cellar installations, and label artwork produced by members of the family themselves, the Rothschild's timeless commitment to the fusion of art and wine is a legacy that continues to inspire connoisseurs and enthusiasts alike. Visit goodhousewadston.com for more information. So now, sit back, pour yourself a glass, and enjoy. Hey guys, I am so excited to have on my sofa today, Nikki Spence, Scottish-born, internationally known operatic tenor, who is the winner of the BBC Musician Magazine Personality of the Year 2022, and as well as being an opera singer who graces the stage in all kinds of countries. I checked out from your website that you're going to be singing in Berlin, Wales, Copenhagen, Czech Republic, and of course England this year, and probably many more countries, which I don't know about yet. But he is also a TV regular in various arts programs, including being the main mentor on Sky Arts, Anyone Can Sing. I actually think probably the best description I've seen of you has been The Times, um, who describes you as a tenor who combines heroic tone and a poetic sensibility that takes the breath away, and that you've earned your place as top of the profession as a most compelling singer-actor. And it is this emphasis on human connection which seems to underlie your various operatic pursuits and which I can't wait to explore much more over wine. Oh my God, Donnie, what an overture. <laughs> I'm exhausted, all of that wind <laughs> flying up my kilt. How exciting. I, I practiced my diaphragm control, obviously knowing you were coming. Yes. Yes. It was quite the dramatic delivery. <laughs> I didn't know if I was sat here with you or Judy Dench. <laughs> What a shock. Well, as you know, I normally have three wines. I start with the first wine. But with you, we're starting off slightly differently. Because I remember when I asked what kind of wines you enjoyed, you said, oh, please, can you try and find a wine which is good for the voice? Oh, very good. Yes. Well, after quite a bit of research, I've discovered that even though some people have argued spirits can apparently warm up the vocal cords, Mm. apparently caffeine and wine is not the greatest. Nicht so good. Nicht so good. Exactly. But yes. I can enlighten you to my world of what I do to kind of make me enjoy wine, but maybe not feel so much of the enhancements of wine. Oh, very good. And it's something which a doctor recommended to me. So we're going to start off with some vitamin C tablets. Oh, very good. But um, their maximum strength, so each tablet is 1,000 milligrams, but it's the non-acidic forming, so you will be okay. And that apparently, it kind of acts like a Barocca. It kind of alerts you while you're drinking and also helps you kind of 
you know, get everything out of your system. Well, that's it, Tony. I've got to wake up with it. Oh, sorry, that, there goes the dog coughing. Well, I'm sorry if the vitamin C set you off, Glenn. Sorry, I forgot to mention that we have your gorgeous Glenn on the sofa. And remind me of the breed of Glenn. He's a Pouchon. A Pouchon. Which is a poodle and a Bichon Frise, which is the gayest of the dogs. <laughs> and he looks like a little cloud with legs, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And I love his bow tie. Yeah, of course. Well, we knew we were coming to, you know, W8, is it? No, where are yes. we? Yes. W8. So he doesn't normally wear a bow tie for an SE8, which is where we live. Well, I'm, I'm, well, I've never yes. had such a delightful furry companion. Thank Bless you so you. much. Bless you. He's very well behaved so far. Well, thank you for my vitamin C. See, no, it's, it's, it's a lifesaver. I do it before I do wine tastings, go to events. Oh. I would say that if it's a long night, you might want to pop two more. Thank you so much. Well, I do find that before I go to bed, after a heavy night of drinking, that I do often take a vitamin C before bed. So this is nice. We'll have a little bookend. bookend. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And remind me, because you only got married last year, didn't you? Very true. What wine did you have at your wedding? Oh, well, interestingly, we didn't have champagne. Because I'm not what? the hugest fan of champagne. I remember you saying. Because I think it tastes of farts, if I'm honest. <laughs> and I think it was Oscar Wilde that used to have like a carrot in his pocket. Because I often think that you get bad breath with champagne as well. Did you have... He had a oh carrot in his pocket, and that used to kind of neutralise his breath. Yeah. That's so brilliant. you know, I don't want to have you know fruit in my pocket or vegetables. <laughs> is that is that a carrot in your pocket? You pleased to see me? So I we went for a lovely cremant. Oh, I love cremant, which went down really well. And it's made the same Scotland. way as champagne, and like, exactly. I know it's bubbly and fun. It feels like a bit, um, a bit less sweet. Is it a bit less sweet? You'd know, darling. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Because you can get cremant from all over the place. Um, so it depends where the grapes are grown. Because um, particularly if it's from cremant de Jura or cremant de Burgundy, like, yeah, you're going to have a, a cooler climate. Oui. And yeah, it's like a quarter of the price. And also, don't you find at those big events when you're serving sparkling wine, no one's really looking at the bottle. Oh, it's no. It's that time of the occasion when everyone's just so busy, like excited, chatting, looking up for the canapes, busy you know whatever yes so I it think could be Libra Milch exactly. for all their they bloody know once they've got haggis bonbon <laughs> down their gobs and actually we did start off with nice cremant and then the wine just got worse as the day went along because well, like no one's really paying attention by that point oh too. exactly so, by 2pm yeah. it was kind of like you know blue nun down the hatch and um, you'd also mentioned you like Sauvignon Blanc oui and you also mentioned that you like Macon oui uh, yeah Chardonnay so I've gone for neither of those oh but god I wish we'd never had that conversation <laughs> <laughs> so this was actually a, oh. a discovery of mine I'm not going to tell you what it is we'll see what you think but I only discovered it last week and I thought Wowee. it would be a fun I want to go for something spring going into summer which the sunshine's streaming in through the window so it exactly. seems good yeah exactly very good so cheers well, and hopefully with this wine it is meant to be all kind of bright and fresh mm, no a lot oak of on it citrus on citrus, there darling. exactly am i allowed to say what i, I feel like oh, just, please yes jilly golden full jilly oh, golden oh yeah tell me tell me and then yeah do the slurpy slurpy it's a yes. safe space here essence essence of squirrel and all the rest <laughs> of whatever else she says <laughs> Oh, it's lovely, isn't it? I'm getting lots of kind of citrus and kind mm -hmm. of grapefruity. Yes. See, you, yeah, you do yes. know. Oh, yeah, perfect. Am and I then, allowed to drink it now? Yeah, just slurp it around. Slurp around. Because by um, sucking in a little bit of oxygen, you're then again oxygenating the wine to relieve the release the flavour compounds. And then hopefully you'll get like some good acidity and some maybe other flavours going on. It's really fresh, very zesty, not unlike 
the vitamin C we just had. had exactly. It's a lovely kind of this, the connective tissue between a Barocca and, you know, a good meal. It feels, yes, very fresh and very drinkable. Well, I wanted to start, I always like to start with the lighter, fresher wines mm. first. And I also know that you obviously like light and bright because you love your Sauvignon Blanc. This is actually an Alvarino. So oh. I don't know if you've heard of Alvarino from Spain. But you si. might have heard that grape, maybe. Yes. This is the same thing, but it's from Portugal, and it's called Alvarino. And it comes from the Iberian Peninsula, very close to the ocean, which kind of gives it that zippy zestiness. Yes. And I just think it's really lovely to drink on its own. It's great with seafood. It's mm. great with a kind of cheese board over there. Yes. And um, I always like to have a wine, two wines from an independent and one wine from a supermarket. And I discovered this last week at Morrison's. Good old Morrison's. And it's £7.50. And exciting. I just think I love discovering things, particularly, you know, this is a great picnic wine, our fresco mm. wine. And um, also, I thought, yeah, so I thought you'd like it for that. It's very much, I would describe it like the Carmen of opera. You know, it's oh. accessible. It's, it's meant to be a crowd pleaser. It's not meant to be too complex. I love it. I was thinking yeah. of Carmen kind of washing, washing herself in, in the market square with some chickens running around. Are you getting any of that as well? I, I'm going to have to go back for another. another yeah. swig. It's really oh, yeah. lovely, though. I'm almost getting, I don't know if this is true, but a bit of licorice. Yeah, absolutely. Probably like probably maybe some of the, the blossom, because they do have the scrubland on the peninsula. Oh. So you could maybe be picking up there, some Typical of the kind of me. sensitive. Sensing the scrubland. <laughs> Sounds like my biography. <laughs> Brought and, up in the scrubland. <laughs> well, actually, this leads me on to, because, wait, you were born in Scotland. I. But then you moved to England. Yeah, when I was 17. And then what made you go back to Scotland? Um, my mum got divorced. Got divorced. And then you went back to Scotland. So we went back for, for refuge. And actually, I, w I could have been smoking kind of regal king sizes on a... Actually, I was when I was 10 in a council <laughs> estate. And then my mum was like, right, we're going back to Scotland, back to the heathery hills. Because, you know, yeah. it's harder to live like a heathen up there. <laughs> so with all that fresh air. So I went back, yeah, it was a very good move. And so, yeah, you were already, it sounds like, you know on cigarettes or whatever were you brought up with wine at all or no, no we're really not big drinkers my dad is teetotal oh wow okay yeah which is kind of interesting because i think a lot of his family had alcohol issues and my mum, like we're real foodie people as you can yeah. tell by the size of us i'm i'm for the listeners i'm shaped like a bungalow no, and no, no no don't worry i'm very sexy it's all good <laughs> well and, i was gonna definitely agree with the sexy part yes <laughs> and um yes yeah, so we're not huge boozy people at all all like I can't even remember the first time I had any wine yeah I was gonna ask yeah what was your yes I, well maybe we went on a kind of like a school exchange trip or something when I was like 13 14 and I remember my little sexy pan pal Pascal <laughs> I think he had he had lent me 50 francs and we went and had wine with our meal which they do just <gasps> yeah, de, exactly. de, rigueur, de rigueur yeah as they'd say so I think I might have had some then and really enjoyed it but I wasn't much of a kind of like bingy drinker or anything yeah. like that. So I've got a really healthy relationship with alcohol, I would say. And with wine, really, really nice. So how would you enjoy, would you enjoy it going, like, would you and your partner go out for meals and enjoy wine? Would you have it at home and cook? I mean, do you enjoy cooking food or more like going out and trying yes. new restaurants? No, yeah. I love cooking. And because I'm always traveling, it's so nice to be That's home. That's true, yeah. And I love that. And if I don't have to sing, the, the problem is, being a singer, is that you just can't 
do anything fun because your instrument is in your bloody body. Well, I was going to say, how does one balance then your like, love of food and wine, but then also like a very physically demanding job, not only just traveling around, but as you say, you're carrying your instrument. Yes, yes, the vocal athletics. I'm always kind of hovering over the destruction button, to be honest. I'm always desperate for a night out where I can just like push it and get drunk and smoke and, you know, do all the things that one shouldn't do just because it's so boring. I think like Ethel Merman said, to be a good performer, you got to live like a fucking nun. Yeah. And it's true. I'm literally wearing a wimple most of the time and because I work all the bloody time um, I'm not complaining but it's just kind of slightly boring so I can't wait till I can retire hang the old cords up and then just drink every day yeah. and just let the acid reflux arrive <laughs> and the gastric juices ruin my cords and you won't have I'm... to worry about vitamin C exactly <laughs> vitamin gone definitely <laughs> here is the second wine cheers clink and full eye contact and it's going to tell us a bit more golden in colour. It is a bit more golden in colour, isn't it? And we've just inhaled some cheese. So this is bound to be a good bedfellow. And that's why Glenn the dog is getting very spirited. I know. Being over-familiar with that side plate. Stop it, Glenn. You're such a whore. Mm. Oh, Wow. Now, you said you liked your Macon, so I knew you liked your Chardonnay. That's lovely. This is Chardonnay. Oh, so nice. I love, it's, it's nice, though, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's got a rich mm. richness to it, but there's like a lovely little saline, like bright acidity there, too. Oh. And almost like hazelnuts. It's like something like nuttyish going on. Let me go on. back. Let me go back yeah. for the hazelnuts, babe. It's definitely got a much deeper profile. Yeah. Uh, and when you smell it, too, you can always smell like hazelnuts and like mm. big, like kind of golden apples, like warm, like almost pink lady-like sweetness. I got, you know? the, I got the nuts. Yeah. And the, and the acidity. Yeah, and the kind of saltiness. Do you get like a like almost like, yeah. you know, like um like if you salted hazelnuts and like roasted them? Yes. It's almost like that. Definitely. It's got like a little hint of you know, a little kind of sluice of salt water. Yeah. That's lovely. It's so funny that when you have somebody who actually says what's in there, you can taste them more. And whether that's just the power of suggestion or mm. the fact that I did actually taste them all. But no, but you inspired were, yeah. by your no, brilliance. And you did, and you immediately picked up on the fact that it's like more golden, it's more rich, mm. but the brightness too. And I, like you, believe anyone can taste, and you believe that anyone can sing. And yes. um, this wine links into how you are connecting opera to a wider audience, because I will now show you the bottle of Show the Chardonnay. The it's from South Africa. Oh wow! And I'm going to call this the Brunhilde from the from the Ring Cycle. Oh yes, from the Why? wine. Um, so um, this is Atlas Swift as the winery, and yeah. they're based in South Africa. And what they do um, is they make. They've done this now, this experiment since 2009, where they choose five different sites for Chardonnay. Two of them are cooler, three of them are kind of warmer. They make all of the Chardonnays in exactly the same way because what they really want to do are for those Chardonnay grapes to express that particular site. And because oh. like they're very connected to the land. And this is Cape South. So for, it's from actually when they first started this experiment. It's near the peninsula where they used to go camping. And um, they teamed up with this Ukrainian artist who are like tasting with them in the barrels and hearing about what the land was like, then basically has um, painted five different female warriors who are basically custodians of the wine and inviting people in to have their own experience with the wine 
based on the, the kind of personality and characteristics of the wine. So I actually spoke um, to the winemaker, Welmer. So it's Welmer and Martin, they're a happily married couple really cute. And I zoomed with her yesterday because I actually also just discovered this wine last week. And I was like, I love South African white wines. I love their Chardonnays. And I was like, please, like I fell in love with this. And um, so she actually says, you know, we love Cape South. This is where they began their project. And you know how I was picking up on that kind of like saltiness and you're kind of like tasting that like lovely bright acidity alongside the rich fruit and nuttiness and she's like well it comes from this very special soil of limestone and potassium and the water's very alkaline and it gives it this salinity and she's like this is what I feel like gives mystery and this extra freshness and layers to the wine and um, she actually describes you know the wine developing characters in the barrel and she said when they make these wines not only do they take in the actual physical landscape but um she first of all tasted it with her husband and then they tasted it with this artist to kind of come up with descriptors. And um, with this one, I'm just like looking for the descriptors now. Um, she kind of described it as like mysterious, rich, you know, poised in the eye of the storm because it is near the ocean. So that's why there's kind of like rainstorms there and ocean waves, sea kind of running down her face. She's a bit windswept there, Exactly. But the warrior woman remains unstirred albeit engulfed by wind and the ocean lashing at the shores. And she's in love. Pink lips betray dusted heartache of the past. Untamed, she has found freedom of expression here, determined to pour her compelling sense of self into the earth and vineyards. So they want something which is intriguing, yet rich. And so the whole thing is you're meant to be intrigued by the lovely perfume and richness of like peach but then there's also that like kind of oyster shell and salinity there and um i tried all five of the chardonnays and it was amazing how you can you know, like make a it fun ex- night <laughs> it was great absolutely <laughs> and um, acquainted with these five yeah exactly mysterious, M- warriors. mysterious warriors and um so as soon as i was like thinking okay we need a powerful female warrior then was like going through like opera i thought like brunhilde from like the ring cycle like she would yes she often would, spear yeah. Clad, spear clad, and yes, Votan's daughter. So she was the, the real deal. The real deal. When exactly. it comes to warriors. And this was my, my favorite. Um, this, this is the, the Cape South, but they have four other Chardonnays as well. And yeah, so um, what I really love what they're doing here is connecting the art to the wine almost in this synesthetic way. And they actually mm. use that descriptor of linking one sense with another sense. And that's kind of really what you're doing a little bit like with opera in terms of linking this one particular genre, but to a much wider audience and making people see it in new ways. And uh, like, it does not surprise me why you won Personality of the Year last year, because... Oh, bless yeah, you. Yeah, no, it is about communication yes, at the end yes. of the day. Well, my face should also be one of the, the six warrior, perhaps. I wouldn't look as windswept as our dear friend there on the, the Chardonnay bottle, but I'd give it a good go. But it is, it's that whole what, why I love opera is about the collaboration and it is about being an access point for so many different varying styles of art, be it yeah. visual, the, all of the senses getting involved. And, you know, you've got 100 people in the orchestra, you've got all of these actors on stage, singers, dancers. It's the whole kind of gamut of, 
of kind of artisans, if you will. Absolutely. It's this cross-pollination of all of these things. Exactly. Which makes it so fun. Like, and I've even seen, like, opera with ballet troops as well, you know, oh, combining definitely. with, like, rombert or whatever. And it's, yes. it just brings it all to life. I was curious, though, because, mm-hmm. yes, you've always loved classical music and opera, but you actually made your debut album with Universal Classics. First, you had a five-year record contract with them. And you were nominated Performer of the Year at the Classical Brit Awards. What made you then turn your back on recording your second album and really deciding to focus solely on opera? Well, interesting. I was really enjoying my time doing that. And I was really young and we'd literally come from nothing as a kid. And as as, as soon as I had this opportunity to bring classical music to a wider audience, I was like, yes, let's do it. But the way that it was being done at that time it was very much like classical crossover. So they used to dumb down the experience. So yeah. maybe it's probably like finding a really gorgeous wine like this one we're drinking, kind of watering it down to maybe be more drinkable yeah. to a mass market. And I just felt my shelf life kind of careering at me at great speed. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to sustain that because there were so many other factors involved which were out of my control. Like whether I'd be able to go on Lorraine Kelly for the second time or oh all of this kind of thing. And it wasn't really based on anything I could be in control of. So I didn't enjoy that part of it. I loved lots of it, kind of, yeah. you know, meeting all the royal family and uh, going on tour with Shirley Bassey, things like that. <gasps> Amazing. What was she like? Oh, she was fabulous. She was so great. And, you know, talk about divas. She could definitely still be an opera singer. She had a set of pipes on her, I can tell you. So doing things like that was was very fun. But then I really enjoy the fact that I do a fine art and that it can't be questioned in a way because it is, in a way, it's kind of untouchable, which is really exciting. And I think if people drill into these kind of like art forms much more and see them as, wow, this is such an extraordinary art form. And the same with ballet and with, you know, fine wines. That actually, it is for everybody, but it has to have that element of respect and that we don't have to dumb it down. So I was really pleased that I made that decision. So interesting because why I wanted to go into into wine was like, I loved it and I saw it as one of the art forms, but lots of people kind of thought it was very elitist and scary. You had to be from education. And I'm, I know that opera and classical music and lots of, and art all suffer from the same thing. But I think your story just shows that like anyone can enter into opera. I mean, how did you, you said that, you know, from your background, it was not something you grew up with. Mm. It, like it would not have been an immediate career choice. So how did you get into it? And did you find it relatively accessible for you? Not really. When I first went to the Guildhall School of Music, I was surrounded by loads of people that went to private school and people that could do back harmony and all the rest of it. And I literally could sing Tom Jones and had learned three Schubert songs to do my entrance exams. Entrance exams, yeah. So it was very much like a rough diamond. Yeah. And didn't have, I thought, didn't have much else to offer. But I could always spin a yarn and tell a story. And I think that's what they saw in me, thank God. And then slowly I got to grips with the art form and the actual rigours of opera, which are really exciting and very human. And you don't have to have had all of this kind of learned bullshit, which came before. But I started getting early success. And then I think because of that, because of where I've come from, I thought, oh, I better do this then. Because if you get endorsement and you haven't come from anywhere, then you think, oh, I better do this then. I'm stuck with this. I didn't have the 
situation where I could say, oh, I'll just change career path and yeah. mummy and daddy will pay for a new training or blah, yeah. blah. I had to really think, right, I've got to make this success of this. And I'm always living in fear that my career will kind of, you know, I'll get found out. I mean, this usual thing of imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome which we all live through, yeah. and that I'll have to be like penniless and broke again like I was when I was a kid. So I'm always kind of like working far more than I need to and, you know, really trying to push things as far as I can in terms of um, doing what I do well. But it's a good thing in, in a way. It gives me fire in my belly. Are there any kind of like principles, guidelines, steps to someone who's like never been to an opera or maybe at least in common, but they're like, how does one approach a Wagner? Yes. Would there be any tips or things which you would say to them or? Well, I think probably just kind of crashing through preconceptions, yeah. which I'm sure you do as well with wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And people are often amazed that actually operas contain incredible narrative mm -hmm. and that they are actually the most brilliant stories told in the most incredible visceral physical way and so i think actually you're not just coming to see people with an unambitious bmi singing for a few hours not really moving around <laughs> i've never heard do you know what i mean well i just came up with it on the spot i but love that <laughs> it's it's the same with wine you know some people just drink to get drunk yeah some people don't want to have the process and the thing is with opera is that there's quite a lot of process and i think as a body of people we've become quite instant instantaneous we want things immediately so we want result we want a golden buzzer we want a confetti cannon Whereas actually with opera, you've got to let the music unfurl. So especially with something like Wagner, you're not as an active participant in yeah. the opera. It's something, it's like a hot bath. You get in it and it kind of happens to you. Whereas something a bit sprightlier, say like Rossini oh, or yeah. Mozart, which is a bit bubblier. Maybe that's more in the kind of like, you know, the champagne cremant. I was, I was immediately thinking cremant when you yeah, said that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's much more palatable, much more for everybody else. It kind of trips along and it's not kind of like very heavy weather everything no. and nothing has to sometimes you just want to have quickie and yeah. sometimes it's you want mood. It's yeah mood. you want like tantric yeah. sex with wagner yeah <laughs> and sometimes you just want to do it nice and quick up against the wardrobe not that we're doing that today not, today. not with the dog watching <laughs> do you have a favorite opera or I favorite I, composer um, to I've, sing yeah probably it would be i would probably be like top three janacek Wagner and Benjamin Britten. Because ben, Benjamin Britten, if you know any of his operas like Peter Grimes, oh, yeah. Billy Budd, he did loads of kids' operas as well. And he was such a complex person. He had a lot of like issues with his own queerness, I guess. Right. So it was very kind of like boxed up, as it all had to be back in the day. And he kind of like hung out with No Carriage and all those guys who were kind of like closeted, but also brought this whole kind of clandestine feeling with their queerness because they couldn't be open. So a lot of that frustration is in all of his operas. And that is very interesting to me as an openly big, big faggy person. Fabulous. Um, that actually it's very, you can hear it all and it's so kind of tempestuous. And it's great to sing as well because his partner was a tenor. So he had ah. all the best music, so I got all the best music. Yeah. Oh, I'm having more wine, folks. I know, I Here love the Chardonnay. By the way, um, oh. it's available from Nectar Wines. I'm just going to do a little shout-out. Plug, plug. Um, to this wonderful online independent Nectar Wines, N-E-K-T-E-R. And um, so it's available there, and it's around £44. Oh, love. You've really so pushed the boat out for me. It's Thanks, not... Babe. Yeah, I mean, it's not crazy, because when you think of Burgundy, 
you often have to pay like double that. Yes. Whereas like this is absolutely premium and like, you know, special wine. Yeah. But it's not crazy crazy. Yeah, it's like a nice bottle of wine for a special meal. Exactly. But it's special not like, occasion. you know, remortgage the house kit. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So on to wine number three, the final wine. Oh. You no, you'll notice that we've changed colour. The finale. The finale, know. exactly. Yes. The grand finale. And I remembered that when we were talking about reds, you'd said, oh, I kind of like meaty reds. I don't like really big reds. And I mentioned, well, have, what about chilled reds? And you said, oh, I've never had a chilled red. A chilled red. Today you're going to try a chilled oh red wine you're popping my chilled red cherry <laughs> yes i am in front of an audience <laughs> well glenn's so got exposed. his eyes well glenn's got his eyes closed it's all okay, okay <laughs> shut your eyes where's this from this is from california oh shut your from eyes from yolo county again YOLO. like it's that's like central california i just love the name yolo yolo you only live once i love it we gotta <laughs> speak of vocal fry <laughs> exactly so wow. um donegan hills yolo county and it is a blend, even though the grapes come from California, they're actually three Italian grapes, which hopefully you'll pick up on the kind of red cherry, uh, red cranberry, like very tart, but bright and ripe at the same time. So always like with Italian reds, I love that um, intensity of fruit flavor combined yeah. normally with great acidity. These grapes have got some air miles. Mm-hmm. And it's made from one of the top producers, I would say in California, Steve Mathiasen who I'll go into a bit more detail with mm. in a bit. Oh, lovely. An abundance of cherries. Cherries, strawberries, cranberry. I get a little bit of cranberry life. spray, you know, like a cranberry of, juice. Well, ocean you know. spray. Well, <laughs> Wait, is that Others what? are available. Oh, yeah, ocean what spray. What have to have if you have cystitis? Yeah, ocean spray, not cranberry spray, ocean spray. Ocean spray, cranberry yeah. juice. That, that's but, that's but, a very yeah. rough weekend. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's, but it doesn't taste of ocean spray. It's lovely. No, it's all um, the berries. Really berryish, and yeah, it's kind of like very zippy and zesty. And the reason why I put it in the fridge was because if a wine doesn't, um, what, what by doing it in the fridge is it really enhances the aroma mm. and the brightness. And Steve Messiason, who has been in Napa, I mean, he's been making wine for probably over 20 years there now. He's very much known for ripeness in his wines, but also this, like kind of puck-like brightness and playfulness. And yes. um, by putting his wines in the fridge, it very much enhances the aroma, enhances the brightness. I wouldn't recommend putting a huge, heavily oaked Californian Cabernet in there because by putting it in the fridge, it'll only enhance the oak aging, so that will kind of really dry the wine out. It'll also enhance the alcohol levels, and lots of them can be 16%. Um, this is 11.5% alcohol, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's really low. I mean, that's, like, practically just, like, juice, you oh, know? Oh, it's, it's ribena tooth kind. Exactly. Basically. And um, and this really, it's been mainly put into stainless steel because um, as soon as you put wine to age or like be fermented in oak that will kind of mask some of the purity of the flavors and add on maybe coconutty things or other spices or whatever so he kind of fermented this and um which was in stainless steel and then i think there was like a little bit of neutral oak aging at some stage but the whole thing is by that point the oak will have been used several times over so really what you're giving to the wine is no spiciness no yeah. vanilla none of that it just kind of adds a little bit to the body it's really fresh. Yeah. So he... Um, it's real cleanser, palate cleanser. So this is part of... So Steve Messiasen, he's he calls himself a farmer, 
and not a winemaker. He's big into sustainability and organics and minimal Does he wear intervention. A I don't think so. Okay, just had to clear that up. Uh, no, he doesn't. No plan. I'm, I'm going to protect Steve here. No. Okay. And it's another husband and wife team. So we had Wilma and Martin in yeah. South Africa. And now we've got Jill and Steve in California. Oh. And um, he has some very serious wines, which are kind of are more in the 50 pound, 80 pound bracket. So yeah. amazing Cabernet Sauvignon, amazing Chardonnay, the usual suspects from Napa and Sonoma. Some actually very good Italian white varietals, uh, Ribolla di Gialla. But he has this range called Tondu, and he does tondu. a Tondu. He does a Tondu Rouge and a Tondu Blanc. And do we say that in French? Is it like Tondu? You know what? Tondu? I probably... I want to say it en Francais. I'm just going to do that too. I mean, I know... I mean, yeah. the irony is, Tondu was meant to be for his like kind of accessible barbecue wine range. Oh. So this is, um, again, from Nectar Wines. And I think this is £23.70 or something wow. of that ilk. Yeah, so it's not cheap, cheap, but as I say, like he's a top producer yes. in Napa and Sonoma. He finds these amazing sites. So this one is from Dunnigan Hills from Central California. And it's a really fun blend. I'm going to give you a top up because really, this is just grape juice. Well, it's going down. At 11.5%. Um, a treat. This it's 49% Barbera grape, so from northern Italy, and then about 20% of the Aglianico grape from southern Italy, and 20% of Montepulciano, which kind of gets from central coast of Italy. So it's lovely. It's a kind lovely. of wonderful culmination of Italy. And Montepulciano is gorgeous. I've been mm. there um, quite recently. Lots of hills. Lots of hills. There's probably a bit of sweat in this wine as well. <laughs> exactly the hard labour. Yeah, up the hills. He's very environmentally conscious, Steve oh, Thyerson. Well so he Steve. has opted for American-made lightweight glass bottles and compostable corks. Oh, so very up plant, for that. Plant that in the garden. Don't think about it again, couldn't you? Exactly. And uh, yeah, so I mean, if, if whiny people are listening, they'll probably heard of Steve Mathiasen because, as well as Mathiasen Wines and then this Tondi range. Um, he also is an amazing consultant for all kinds of very famous wine wineries, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, um, Trefethen, Long Term Wine, Meadow Wines. So basically he's hired by the good and the great. Mm. Matthiasen is like their premium wine, but this is, he's like, he grew up taste, like he grew up with a family who were like wine very much signified the end of the working day. Very good. Which actually for an American is quite unusual. It is, because they usually be grappling for some kind of light beer, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, and because of prohibition and everything, yes. I would de like it, they just had a very different connection. Yeah, Steve and Jill are very. Is yeah. it Jill? Jill, exactly. Jill. They're not kind of California names, are they? Steve and Jill. Steve, no, they're not. I don't think Sound like they're from Wigan. I, I, <laughs> don't they? Steve and Jill. <laughs> I can Italian definitely vouch. That they're not from Wigan. <laughs> but they could be, couldn't they? And I think Steve is from the Midwest. He's not from California. But as well as no, thinking that you'd enjoy this wine and you said that you'd never tried a chilled red, I also chose this wine because it touches upon the thing we we're talking about before of like combining wine, music together, cross-pollination, mm -hmm. synesthesia, combining one sense maybe with another sense people wouldn't usually expect. So he's like known as making really brilliant wines, which are also very fresh. And people are like, how do you get that balance? Particularly in California now where climate change 
it's happening. It's not mm. when it's going to happen. It's happening. Awesome. So he's, he actually explained to someone in an interview recently, he's like, when I listen to music, do maths, taste things, I see colors. For me, balancing the wine is about balancing the spectrum of colors in the wine when I taste it and smell it. With red wine, I'm shooting for the color red, balanced by black and green. For white wines, the dominant color is greenish, yellow, gold. And he also experienced flavors as visual stimuli. So the colors of the silhouetted shears oh, yes. on like all of the things, like all of his labels have these shears on them. He uses all of his labels to carefully correspond to the colors that he actually tastes in each of the wine. And when oh. you look at this label, it's almost kind of this kind of blood red, like kind of purplish, it's, kind of like purpley, yes. brambly. And russety. Russety, exactly. So I it's kind of- lovely. So I kind of thought, wow, that's like a really interesting way of how he engages with wine. Yeah. And actually, as we kind of talked about before, how you kind of engage with music mm. and actually how you also, going on to your other interests and other activities, which you briefly talked about, um, you almost use music as this connector in terms of the voluntary work you do or in terms of really getting people to open up mm. and use music in a way of therapy. Because I remember listening to um, an interview where you actually said, actually singing is just all about psychological training. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you help train people, like, for example, when you were um, the main mentor on Anyone Can Sing, mm. did you almost feel yourself having to be like a psychologist and kind of using music and psychology in, in that kind of connective way with the guest oh certainly and it's interesting if you work with people that have never sung before or have a bit of a horse crutch in terms of trying to sing or they say oh i'm too on death that sounds like steve and jill <laughs> there is a way of kind of getting through that because often they're having a trauma as they sing so you kind of pick apart and when i do quite a lot of consulting with kind of younger artists and things kind of sit down and try and work out where they are because like any musician or sports person you're trying to recreate the conditions which allow you to do your best work and feel safe and feel safe absolutely and because generally people are trying to feel good about what they're doing and if they kind of self-sabotage and all that kind of thing so it's kind of looking at what is going wrong in terms of their process and try and find out what's going on there. Why? Because it's one of the only things singing, actually, which is a perfect combination of engagement and release. And if you're not releasing, you don't release everything because then you just become like a jelly. Yeah. But you actually have to engage the right things and allow your body to work for you. So there's a lot of actual psychological stuff in there. And we all do all kinds of things. I mean, first off, you have to release your tummy muscles as a singer to be able to use that very intricate set of muscles support system. Which is counterintuitive to lots of people who have to feel yeah, they I have mean, to yes. stick their stomachs in. And well, we all do. Just yeah. like, you know, we're sat on the central line today, Glenn and I, the dog, we're both sucking in our tummies. And then because we go around and we're tense and we feel everything in our shoulders and life stressful. So by the time you go to sing, you really have to release these these muscles because when we are babies, we can cry for hours without getting tired. So you basically have to go back to that primal state. Do you th think, therefore, if you allow yourself to go back to that primal state, then really anyone can sing? Oh, certainly. Certainly. I've not met somebody, as long as they have a functional larynx. Fair. Two chords that yeah. are happy together. 
then absolutely something can happen. I must admit, because um, I used to sing jazz. And, oh, scabbity um, wop wop. <laughs> exactly. Um, oh, yeah. Believe me, I, I do scat. I, oh, I love doing it. I'm not very good man. at it. But, and I'm job. not going to do it on the podcast. I see it. I see my podcast producer looking very nervous. Don't no, worry, Joel, fabulous. that will not be happening. But it was funny because like in my finals at university, I thought I was fine, like, even though I clearly wasn't. I was having proper insomnia. But like, I hadn't cried, I hadn't like, whatever. And then it was only at my jazz singing lessons when I started singing, I would just burst into floods of tears. Yes. And like, I hadn't cried for like, um, you know, whatever. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. And I remember my singing teacher saying to me like, I know this always happens. Absolutely. Like, I've had all my like pupils cry on me. Like that yeah. is, like when you have that connection and that release. Yeah. It yeah. opens the floodgates. Absolutely. And it's a very you are exposing yourself to a vulnerable level, which doesn't normally happen. I mean people normally can't handle hearing themselves on a voicemail. If you no, imagine exactly. that times a hundred when you're singing, because it's like the fibre of your honest being. And you don't have another it's like, you know, whether you play the piano, like you have like another connection in between. Yes. But this is like totally in you and there's, there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to hide from. Yeah, exactly. It's an exercise in terror. <laughs> exercise in terror. Which is also the name of my autobiography. Is it? No. Oh. That I was thought, a joke. Oh. <laughs> I thought I was like, you've yeah. had it here first, people. Absolutely. No, no, no. Are you working on an autobiography? Oh, God, no. I can't remember anything, especially now I've had five glasses of wine. <laughs> you kidding? You used to be quite religious, mm. and, I, and you still say that you still do have a faith, and you're wearing the Virgin Mary actually on your jacket, like I right now. I think it's actually the, the Mary of Guadalupe. Oh, sorry, sorry, it's the Mary of Guadalupe. Sorry, sorry. Guadalupe, but I'm sorry. sure she's a distant cousin. They're related, I'm oh, sure. Oh, I'm sure. They I must mean, be related. Wearing the same outfit. Um, do you feel that as well as music making us get into the, our primal states, do, do you feel that like music can sometimes connect one to something higher or make one... And you actually said that music allows you to be a better person oh god and i didn't know whether that was like related to like your father's belief or whether that was yeah in in terms of how one connects with the world and to others yes well i think with anything which is visceral like the human voice or anybody that's good at what they do i think they do move people and i think that is a definitely a gift which is given and cultivated but from a, a higher place but I think we often turn to music in times where we can't have just speech alone. You know, we all turn to it collectively for moments of triumph and grief. And, you know, we've got the coronation coming up. Yeah. Not to date this podcast too much. But <laughs> music is a huge factor of that. And we're yeah. looking to that to kind of express what we can't do just by speaking. And it gives us such a kaleidoscopic palette of colors to use in these moments and that's really exciting so i think that music is generally something which is very powerful um i feel lucky that i'm able to be a vehicle for the music i know that you've also said in interviews it strictly came to call that you would cancel all engagements Oh, yeah, because I love dancing so much. That's true. And it keeps... I'm, I'm getting closer. I don't know how. I'm, I know that the stars will align. Again, how does one define useful? Because actually, I think the arts, by bringing people together, by making people um, happy, connected with the world, mm. um, the fact that we are trying to, I think, in the arts, when I'm seeing all these like under 35 schemes trying to get young people into opera, classical music... 
whatever. I mean, I see them tr trying to get a wider audience and trying to connect. And I don't know. I mean, I guess it goes into that age-old argument, like, what is the point of culture? You know? Yes. Um, and there's some people who are like, oh, it's a waste of space. Whereas others are like, well, then we're just nothing without it. Like, what sets us apart from animals or, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. like... Yeah, well, we can be quite beastly. <laughs> but I absolutely agree. But I think that has to be led from the top. And yeah. so much of what we do, we have got a great artistic and cultural heritage, but we have to invest in it or it won't be there. So that yeah. drives me up the wazoo um, all the time. Yeah, with the arts. Yeah, and yeah. the fact that even with the coronation now, we are going to toot our flute at all of these amazing musicians. But it's like, where did they come from? How did they get there? Of course, we have to invest. So otherwise it's not going to happen. And you go to places like Germany where everybody really loves music and they know about music and they know what's on at the opera house. Yeah. And it's not yep. seen as elitist. No. It's just part of the daily diet. No. And But here I think it's something to do with our self-effacing nature that we can't be seen to kind of... We do it with football. We're all into that because that's like, you know, a nice vehicle for our emotion and things. We get and really rugby into it. even. People rugby can talk too, about yeah, rugby yeah. because even that's slightly seen as an elevated football. It's still okay to know be, about rugby and yeah, be engaged with rugby. Yeah. yeah and but, it's just something, obviously I love, I've done a documentary recently about football and it's oh, yeah. linked with music and stuff. And it was really interesting. I loved it and I really got into football and really saw a different side of it. But, all of our politicians, they know when England's playing or whoever's playing and they get really behind. It's like, good luck, blah, 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 all the rest of it. But they won't kind of engage with culture and it is the thing which gives so many people that outlet to express themselves but also show themselves for who they are and it is all the other countries they are actually doubling their budgets for culture and we're the only ones who are shrinking and shrinking and we're going to be like a husk of ourselves and well, it's, it's that well, island mentality it is we're so inward and it's like it's just terrifying i always feel like if you renamed the word culture with self-expression creativity mm. it suddenly wouldn't have such a stigma to it yes. or a prejudice i you know, know. <laughs> i know okay so as well as strictly would there be any other media opportunities or career opportunities which would make you do the same where you just be like screw performing like in berlin like i'm actually like i would be happy to like focus on this I don't think so. I think I think singing will always be my main gig. Yeah. And everything will be kind of be seen through that prism. Yeah. And I'm lucky because that gives me the time or the resources to be able to go and do other little bits and bobs, yeah. which I really enjoy. And, you know, one feeds another, but my singing is definitely the main. Well, this is the time on the podcast when we do a wine confessional. Oh, lovely. I think the worst time I've ever had... <laughs> with alcohol and it was wine related i've had a few actually this is like choosing between my favorite children <laughs> one of the worst ones was when i was doing a gig for the burns club of london which is like the mecca yeah. of robert burns yeah yes oh okay. fair honest, mm -hmm. face oh amelia and all that <gasps> stuff anyway so i was doing that and this lovely wine was going around and i just wasn't kind of like i sat there in my sporran and I wasn't really taking note of how much wine was being consumed. And then I went up to sing, and I was doing the wee Cooper of Five, which goes, um, it's quite wordy. It goes, there was, this is out of copyright, so don't worry. Joel's arse is going 50p, 5p, the producer. No, it's out of copyright. 
Here it is. There was a wee Cooper who lived in Fife, nickety nackety doo doo doo, and he has gotten a gentle wife. Hey, Willy Wallicky ho, jandukalalin, gorash doo 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 doo. So I attempted to do that, but I was slightly drunk. <laughs> and the whole thing just absolutely went to shit. And oh, it was awful. And there was another singer who was on, but she'd had a kidney infection. So she had to chair on stage just in case she keeled over mid-song. And so I was doing this, which has actions and like hitches and hooks and all kinds of shit. And so I fell over this chair. I mean, it was an absolute car crash. <laughs> I think, and yes, a singer should not look like he's enjoying himself more than the audience. And I certainly was. <laughs> that was so good. So that was pretty wild, wild and wine fueled. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that with You're us. Welcome. I'm actually wiping away a tear now. <laughs> Are there any things you want to tell people about, like any interesting albums, tours, pieces of news, website updates, which you would like to share with people? Oh. This will probably be coming out in a couple of months. But Lovely. Yeah. Well, always plenty to go and enjoy. Um, they should check out your website, basically. They should check out my website, Coming to a Hedge Near You. Well, Nikki, this has been a real joy. Thank you. Thank you. This is like literally talking about all my favorite things and drinking lovely wine and yes. laughing a lot. Thank you and for you opening a your wonderful doggy. I brought the dog. Thank you for opening your metaphorical barrel <laughs> for me to suck from. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. I hope that this has inspired you to grab a glass and have a wonderful conversation with someone close to you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please can you like and review because I've heard that this is how people can find me. And if you are interested in any of the wines featured in today's episode, all wine notes are included in the podcast description below. You can also find ways to contact me via my email, website and social media handles. The common theme is at Amelia's Wine. You do need to remember, though, that there is a hyphen between Amelia's and wine. Otherwise, it looks like Amelia's Swine. Thank you so much again and back in blessings.